Good morning. It's so great to see you here today. My name is Hannah and I serve with our student life team. It's a new year and a great opportunity to get connected with community in a group. Groups are forming now and they're with you to support you through the challenges of life. They're a source of joy, growth, and connection. You can look through the online directory to find a group that's right for you at wheatonbible.org groups. From there, you can sort by your campus, life stage, online only, or in person. If you're not sure which is right for you, you can chat with us on our website or consider joining a life group that starts with the Rooted Experience. See you in your group. This year, we're going through an all-church Bible reading plan called the McShine Two-Year Plan. You can get the schedule on our website to print out and keep in a good spot. If you've not read yet through the whole Bible, this is a great chance to do it with a community. Today's reading is Genesis 11 and Matthew 10, just two chapters, and you can easily read it on a train ride to work, listening to a reading in the car, or while you're having your morning coffee. If you want a devotional to go with the reading, there are excellent devos written by volunteers and staff at our church. You can read on the web or subscribe to have them emailed to you each day. We'll hope you join in. That's all for today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. We hope you have a happy new year. Good morning and welcome to Wheaton Bible Church. God's grace and peace to you this morning. I praise God for Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And as a result, I encourage you to come to him this morning with a humble heart, ready to confess your need for him, and ready to receive grace from him, most notably in a reconciled relationship with the Father through faith alone in Christ's finished work on the cross. Let's give him glory today for that amazing gift. Let's stand.
be seated. Praise God for that amazing grace found in Christ. It's because of that grace that we can come to him with full assurance of his forgiveness and of that reconciled relationship with God the Father. With that in mind, let's pray a prayer of confession as I read these verses from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen. Let's stand.
Good morning, familia. 
Today, before the pastoral prayer, um, we get the chance to both celebrate and to lament. We celebrate the faithfulness of God as we look at how we finished our 2020 year financially. I wanted to share with you some of the results of how everything went last year. As a result of your generosity, we ended up 2020, um, you could say, in the black, if you know what I mean. And we are well positioned to begin 2021. So for that, we want to give God glory. How about if we do that? It is obviously God working through you and your generosity that at the end of, uh, the end of 2020, uh, we ended up with a total contributions of $11.2 million. This has to do with your generosity and also because our staff at the church has done such an amazing job of reducing expenses so we wouldn't have to uh, start 2021 in the negative. Um, you will get additional information about our finances uh, later on and uh, as we get, uh, get ready for our, our annual meeting on the 31st. So please wait for that. Once again, we are so grateful for what the Lord has done uh, for his provision, for allowing us to do ministry and continue to do ministry. And I want to encourage you and invite you to continue to give. I think that the glory of God is worth it, the mission of God is worth it, and you are part of that. Amen. That's the part of the celebration. But today we also get to lament. As we look at what happened to our country, uh, to our, at our country's capital on Wednesday, as a church we grieve over the violence, the pain, and in some cases the misrepresentation of Jesus' name. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus called his kingdom citizens to be peacemakers. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we are called to be people who do, who do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with our God. In addition to that, the Bible calls us to be people of truth. And so we hold to reality. No matter what we think about either candidate, John Biden was elected as a president. The pandemic is real. Racial injustice is real, both at a personal and a systemic level. Millions upon millions of babies are being aborted in this country, and sexual abuse and violence of women are in these children, uh, in this country, is real as well. That's the reality of where we live today. And so we pray for the peace of our nation. We pray for the welfare and the healing of our nation. We are citizens of another kingdom first, but we are also citizens of this country. Therefore, we pray and we act for the good and the flourishing of this country. Because we have Jesus as our king, a king of compassion, a king of truth, a king of grace, a king who will lose his life for us and teach us to do the same for him and for others. May we as a church, reflect the reality of Christ's kingdom in this country for the glory of his name, for the joy of his people, and for the well-being of others. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you because we get to understand, Lord, that this is the reality of what it means to live in a broken world. Lord, we do understand that when we are here, we got things to celebrate because your grace is abundant. 
We are so grateful, Lord, that you allowed us to finish 2020 well, Lord. It is because of your love and your generosity. It is because of your presence and your power. It is because you use your church for the glory of your name that we were allowed to finish 2020 well. And for that, we thank you and we worship you. At the same time, Lord, we still live in a broken world. We still struggle with sin. We're still going to see things that we don't want to see. We still can see things that do not reflect the kingdom of God. And therefore, Lord, as, just, uh, as I just stated, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. I pray for your church that we remain faithful to you. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to love and be peacemakers and to be committed to the flourishing of our communities and our country. And I pray for unity and healing upon this beautiful country that you have given us. That is a country that historically has been an example of so many beautiful things, and yet today and in this season, that's not the case. I pray for your forgiveness. I pray that you allow us to repent and to move forward looking to you, our Savior, Lord, and King, putting our trust in you, our Lord and Savior and King. Once again, Lord, thank you so much for everything that you have done. And we commit ourselves to you for everything that you will do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, all right, let me move this out of the way. It's going to be awkward for you and people on the screen. But I need room. So good morning, familia. For those of you that are visiting the church for the first time, for those of you that are connecting uh, to us online for the first time, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors here in the church, the Latino pastor here in the church, just in case you didn't notice. Um, and today, uh, we got the, I got the blessing to start a brand new series based on a section in the Gospel of John. Uh, it's a series that is going to start in John, in John chapter 13, and it's going to go all the way to John chapter 17, and this section is known as the Upper Room Discourse, and the title we have given to this, uh, uh, this series is The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master, and I'm going to explain to you in a second why, um, and in this section what we have is the last words or the last set of teachings Jesus gave his disciples right before he went to the cross. That's very significant. Because if someone, has, someone has said that some of the most important words a person can say are those words you say when you know that you're about to pass away. I think that's true. I think that when we know that our time is limited, I think that when we know that we're going to go away and we're not going to be able to spend more time with our loved ones, I think that when we know that the Lord is calling us home, Every word matters. Every conversation matters. Anything we could tell the people we love matters. Actually, I got a really good example about this. Years ago, um, uh, my family and I went back to Colombia after being outside of Colombia for so many different years, so for, so many, for so many years. And the reason why we went back it's because my brother was getting married. So just in case you didn't know, I, I am Colombian. And just in case you don't know, that's in, the, in America, but in the South. 
just in case. I'm American, people. Um, what is interesting, though, is that the day before the wedding, I got to see my great-grandmother from my mother's side. Uh, it was such a, an amazing woman. She was almost like 90-something at that time. She was really sick. She was about to pass away. And uh, there was a time in which the entire family gathers around her uh, just to speak to her. And she's almost not speaking anymore. Um, but for a second, she stopped and looked at us. And she said one thing. I think I've shared this with you or somebody here in the church at one point. She said, love Jesus. I didn't. Those were the last words of this amazing, beautiful woman to her family. Do you know why that matters? Because those were her last words to us. Every word matters when you know that your time is limited. That's something similar to what we find here in the Upper Room Discourse. Is Jesus sharing with his disciples what he considered to be the most essential things he could tell his people? And his people includes both the disciples and us today. What I find is super interesting is that the first thing the Lord Jesus is going to tell the disciples and us today is found in chapter 13, verse 34. But to give you a little bit of context, we're going to read from verses 31 to 38. So as a sign of reverence to the Lord and his word, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? If you are here with me, could you please say, I'm here. Let's start on verse 31. When he was gone, that's Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, pay attention here. I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, would you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, therefore the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, please speak to us. May the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and transform our hearts by the power of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. And we all say... You may take a seat today. In this passage, we find three things. We find a command, we find a prerequisite, and I find a remedy. The command, as you clearly saw in the text, is that we must learn how to love. The prerequisite is that we must have humility in order to love. And the remedy 
is what we need in order for us to learn how to love in humility. A command, a prerequisite, and a remedy. Let's go with the first point. Uh, the command is to love. I find it um, exceptionally significant, as I mentioned before, that the first essential Jesus gives, the first thing that Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples and to us is that we must learn how to love one another. Let's read verse 34 again. Look at what it says. A new command I give you, love one another. And in verse 35, he repeats it just in case anybody missed it. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. There are a few things that I want you to see here. First, notice that Jesus is not talking about love in general terms, meaning Jesus is not calling us to love people, even though that's a biblical mandate. This is not the first time Jesus talks about love. This is not the first time the Bible talks about love. Actually, when you look at the, um, the book of Leviticus, you know that one of the commandments is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But that's not the kind of love Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about a very specific love. The love that we ought to have within the family of faith. The love that we ought, that we ought to exercise as believers. The love that we ought to exercise as being part of the church. That's why he uses the word disciples. And what Jesus is going to teach us here is that the love within the community of faith is unique. That the love that Jesus is talking about here is not the regular love that we're supposed to exercise to anybody outside the family of faith. What Jesus is going to teach us here is that we love as Christians one another differently. Not better, but differently. That our love for one another, church, is unique. This is part of the reason why, for example, Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, makes a distinction on how we ought to help and serve people and how we ought to love and serve one another. He says, for example, that we are called to do good to all people. That's why, for example, as a church, we have Puente del Pueblo, because we care about our community. We want to do good to all people. But Paul says that we ought to do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers, especially those who belong to the church, especially for those that are part of the spiritual family of Jesus Christ. This is where I get a little bit more personal. And please forgive me if I offend you. That's not my intention. But this is the reason why I have such a hard time understanding why is it that politics have divided the church. I really, I really have a hard time understanding that. I have a hard time understanding why is it that when a Christian that is from a different ethnicity suffers, we don't suffer with him or with her. I, I don't understand how within the Church of Jesus Christ, that's a case. I don't understand indifference within the family of faith. I don't understand it. And I have a hard time accepting it and saying that it's okay. I don't understand why is it that we allowed all the things to break the love that is within the covenant family of God. The love that we have for one another as Christians is different. It's supposed to be different. It's unique. 
Actually, the word that is used in the text is the word agape or agape, however you pronounce it. Doesn't matter because that's not our language. But that word is not romantic love, it's not emotional love. Actually, scholars define it like this is to have love for someone based on sincere appreciation and high regard, to regard with affection and loving concern. To all Christians, it is to take pleasure in someone. Can you see what that means? This is what it means in a very practical way. It means that we love in such a way that we treat other Christians as if they were superior to us. That's the biblical mandate. It's the kind of love that puts other Christians first. It's not a pretend love. It is not a love out of obligation. It is not a convenient love. It is not the love that uses people to accomplish something. It is a radical, genuine, putting others first love. It's a word that goes, it's, it's, a, it's a love that goes beyond words. It's a word, it's a love that goes beyond our good intentions. It's a practical love. It's a love that ought to be demonstrated. That's a different kind of love. You know what I find extremely radical in that text? That Jesus says that this is the number one evidence, people. Number one evidence, church, that we have been converted and that we have a relationship with Jesus. The number one evidence, notice that it says, by this everyone, not just people inside the church, but people outside the church, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how you know who has a saving relationship with Jesus. By how we love one another. Francis Schaeffer, this famous apologist, our apologetic guy, uh, he used to call this text the final apologetic, meaning this is the way we show the world that the reason why we have, the reason why we believe what we believe. This is what he says. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving us a, Jesus is giving a right to the world Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. We must not forget the final apologetic. Our love must have a form that the world may observe. It must be seeable. For all Christians... You know how crazy it is that the world can judge us by the way we love one another? Regardless of your background, regardless of your experience, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your sin. This is how we show the unbelieving world what it means to be a Christian. That's crazy, church. 
The first thing Jesus teaches the church, the most essential thing Jesus teaches his disciples and us, right before he goes to the cross, is that we must learn to love the church. We must learn to love your brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters, we must learn to love in word and deed because our love for one another is unique. Now, there's a problem, though. Let me tell you what the problem is really quick. We have our own definition of what that love looks like. That, that's the problem within the church, you know? We, we created our own definition. That's why some people have excuses to be indifferent. We, we have created this definition of what love looks inside the church. But Jesus, because he's Jesus, because he's our Lord, he's our master, he's not going to let us go just as easy, you know? He is going to show us a definition of love. Listen up. He is not going to teach you a definition of love because definition doesn't change anybody. He's going to show you what that love looks like because that's what is going to transform you and that's what it transforms me. How does that love look like then? That's the question. Well, right in the middle of verse 34, he says this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Can you say must? That's a radical word. Notice that the word must here is not an invitation for you to consider if you would like, like to love people like that. He says, the way I loved you guys, this is the way I want you to love each other. It's a command. It's a must thing. And what he's about to show us is that what is unique about the love of Christians is that it's a humbled love. I actually think that these are almost like synonyms in the Bible. If you're humble, you know how to love. You only know how to love when you are humble. And this takes me to my second point. This is the prerequisite. If you want to learn how to love, you must learn how to be humble. You must learn humility. You know what? When I was putting the word prerequisite here, I had a struggle in my heart because when I was going to college, I hated that word. Because whenever I wanted to register for a class, there was always something that says the prerequisite is this other class. And I wanted to finish quick. But guess what? I couldn't take Calculus 3 without Calculus 1 and 2. But this is similar here to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, if you really want to learn how to love one another, the prerequisite is humility. If you, don't, if you don't learn how to be a humble person, you will never learn how to love. Humility, to love without humility is simply impossible. Because pride is the enemy of love. Now, in order for us to understand what Jesus means by humility, you have to read the entire chapter. Now, we don't have time here, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab sections of it to show you what humility looks like. And to prove why is it that I think that Jesus is saying that in order for us to love, you've got to learn how to be humble. We could start, for example, in verse 1. 
give you some verses here. It says that this happened just before the Passover festival. So to give you context here, um, you might remember the, the Passover festival in that culture in that time was this celebration in which the, the, the Jews uh, celebrated that time in which God gave freedom from, the East, from Egypt. That was that every year these people will remember that. Every year they will have that celebration because they needed to remember that. And it says that Jesus knew that the hour had come. Jesus knew that whenever you read in the Gospel of John the word hour, that means that he knew that he was going to have to go to the cross for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Notice what it says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That phrase is an amazing phrase. Because that means that Jesus loved them to perfection. That what Jesus was about to do was to love them to the uttermost. That what Jesus was about to do was to love them in the fullness of love. He was about to demonstrate what real, genuine, agape love looks like. And he starts by doing one thing. He washes the disciples' feet. After that, verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, for this section, church, I need you to use your imagination. The Lord gave us a brain so we could imagine things. I want you to imagine you being the disciple and Jesus being with you, right in the celebration of the Last Supper. As disciples, we have already believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior promised in the Old Testament. You already know that as a disciple. You have already seen Jesus performing miracles and discerning people's thoughts and speaking with authority and wisdom. You have already seen that. As a disciple, you have already spent three years with Jesus, walking with Jesus. As a disciple, you have already seen Jesus, nature submit to Jesus. Jesus talking to a, a storm and saying to the storm, shh, baby. That's what that means, by the way. And the nature submits to him. As a disciple, we have already seen Jesus perform, uh, get demons out of people and demons submitting to him. As a disciples, we have already seen his compassion, his love, and his power. That's the context. We have seen all of that as disciples. And now, that master, that Lord, that Savior, that Messiah, is about to start washing your feet. That's crazy. You know why? Because nobody in the Jew, Greco, Roman world, no regular citizen would ever, 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 ever touch anybody else's feet. Ever. In that culture and in that time, washing of feet was reserved for the lowest of the lowest in society. Actually, the worst of the worst. Because not even... The slaves of a Jew would do that. It had to be a Gentile slave. 
And here you have with the disciples, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Lord, the Master, humbling himself to, to wash the dirty, bloody, smelly feet of the disciples. Remember, these people didn't even use regular shoes. Mm, that's nasty. And yet, you have Jesus doing this. This is the reason, if you know the narrative, this is the reason why Peter says, you will never wash my feet. Actually, the expression is emphatic. It's almost like if he's saying, Jesus, you will never, ever, 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 under no circumstances, would ever wash my feet. But this is what Jesus says in verse 12. Do you understand what I've done for you? Remember, this comes in the context of him explaining what love looks like. And then in verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Notice what he's saying. Now that I, now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. Crazy thing to say. So not only the master and Lord is doing this thing, but then he turns around and he tells the church, hey, by the way, you got to learn how to do that. Put yourself in the disciples' spot. What is it that you're thinking about as Jesus is telling us that? And then in verse 15, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, if I'm doing this for you, what right do you have to not do it for the church? If you really want to learn how to be humble, you must learn how to wash people's feet. That's what love requires. Humble yourself. Humble yourself if you want to, if you want to love others. I hope you know that the, the thing of washing people's feet is symbolism. It's about the attitude of your heart. It's about you humbling yourself in order to love. There's an author called Paul Miller. He wrote a book called The J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus Every Day or in Everyday Life. And he says this, that love, I love this definition. He says, love is the art of disappearing. It is to take the form of a slave. And humility is the art of disappearing for the sake of love. In other words, if you really want to learn how to love, you got to learn to be okay with you not being in the spotlight. If you really want to learn how to love for the sake of others, you, you have to be okay with you being unnoticed, you know? You have to be okay with you humbling yourself to exalt somebody else. You have to be okay with you being unnoticed in order for somebody else to be noticed. This is the way another author puts it. Love is not you complete me. Love is how can I complete you? 
C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, in his chapter about humility, he says, a humble person, when loving, will not be thinking about humility. You know that if you're doing something for somebody and you're thinking about, oh, look at how humble I am, you messed up. He says that the person will not even be thinking about himself at all. That's how you know that you're humble. How many of us, including the preacher, actually don't think about ourselves. None of us. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why we struggle with love. Now, I want to share something with you that is, I, 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 I find it crazy, amazing. So when you read John, there's a section that is missing there. It's on purpose. You know, when you read the Gospels, the four Gospels, every Gospel adds something to the story. The same story or the same narrative is found in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, I'm going to put it on the screen, but it's got, uh, whenever you get a chance, it's Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. Um, and what we find in the Gospel of Luke is so interesting because, it's, once again, it's the same event, right? But what Luke is going to show us is that what is happening, that something happened between the Last Supper, when Jesus announced that he's going to die, and he's calling people to wash each other's feet right before, right? So there's something between the Last Supper and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Whenever you get a chance, please read that, because it's amazing to see. There's a conversation going on between the disciples, between the Last Supper when he says that he's going to die, and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You know what the conversation was? Listen up, church. Who was going to be the greatest? The conversation between these spiritual people that have been walking with Jesus for three years. Once he tells them that he's going to die, the first conversation is, excuse me, master, who's going to be first? Who's going to be the greatest once you're gone? And Jesus, that is a good God, says the greatest among you should be the youngest and the, one who, and the one who rules like the one who serves. You know what the word serve means in the original? Slave. It's the one that is willing to become a slave for the sake of others. Do you know why that's so significant? Because the disciples struggle just as much as we do today. Their pride was as evident as it is our pride today. The unity of the church then struggled as much as the unity of the church today. Because as human beings, we have this crazy obsession with power and recognition and the admiration and the respect of people. And titles and position matters too much. It matters too much. This is the reason why we are obsessed with self-esteem, self-love, self-fulfillment, and any other selfish pursuit. 
This is the reason why, as people, we are relentlessly promoting ourselves, praising ourselves, and putting ourselves first. If you don't think that that's your case, and if you have social media, just go through that. Just in case you don't have social media, you're not off the hook. This is what an author says. Obsession with oneself not only dim, not only dim, uh, is not only nowadays is deemed as normal and acceptable. It is considered a normal behavior. In our culture, pride is a virtue and humility is weakness. Um, I don't know if you like comedy. I, I love comedy. Part of the reason is because I think I'm funny sometimes. There's a comedian I follow that his name is James Gaffigan, right? Uh, and I, part of the reason why I like him is because he's cleaning his jokes. But he's got this, uh, this one set of jokes um, in which he talks about that. He says that one of the reasons how you know that we are such a narcissistic culture uh, is by going to the gym and see why is it that there are mirrors in the gym, right? And this is what he says being uh, sarcastic. And he says, when I go to the gym, I want to look at myself when I work on myself. I should make a recording so I can listen to myself when I look at myself, when I work on myself, as I live through myself magazine. And read about myself and how can I improve myself. And later, maybe I could go to my Facebook or Instagram so I could look at a page and look at the photos of myself as I read about myself, as I read what I have written about myself. Myself, myself, myself. And Jesus says, stop thinking of yourself. Stop thinking of yourself and learn how to love others. Humble yourself if you want to learn how to love. Be willing to wash people's feet. In specific, the people that are not like you. So you learn how to love one another. Now, you might say, good message, Hannibal. From this point on, I'm going to be humble. You messed up already. Because humility is the byproduct of something else. If humility was the product of willpower, you wouldn't need Jesus. So I want to give you four things that you need to practice regularly in order for us to become humble, in order for us to learn how to love. And this is point number three, the remedy. I think that humility is the byproduct of four things. That we see the broken heart of God, that we see ourselves in the table, our place in the table, that we learn how to wash people's feet, and that we see the bread given to us, and this is going to set us later on for the table. The first thing we got to learn how to see is the broken heart of God. Now, you got to remember that during all these events, Judas, the one that was going to betray Jesus, was there. But notice that it says in verse 21 that after, even, even, do, even though he knew that, that uh, Judas was going to betray him, even though he knew everything was going to happen, the text says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, that's an important phrase because that means that Jesus was emotionally broken, emotionally hurt. As a human being, he was emotionally broken. 
The question is why? Because of what our sin does to him. And because what our sin does to us. Why is it that Jesus is experiencing this if he knows that Judas is the betrayer? Actually, I'm going to show you something um, even more important later on. But what I want you to see right now is that the way you learn how to be humble and the way you learn how to love one another is when you see what our sin does to our Savior. See, we learn to love and we learn how to humble ourselves when we learn to see what our lack of love and our lack of humility does to him. It breaks his heart. We need to learn how to see ourselves at the table. And actually, I don't know if I got the image. Do I have that image on the screen? Yeah, thank you. Really quick, this is coming from a book called, it's called The Final Days of Jesus. The reason why I wanted to show it to you, even though the quality is not super amazing, is because I want you to see how the table was arranged. So usually the table, the Last Supper, was in a, in a U-shape. And if you notice, Peter is diagonal to Jesus. Jesus is right in the center because the host would always sit in the center, right? He was the most important person in the celebration. And the two places of honor was at the right and at the left of the host. Notice the names on the screen. John, which is the disciple loved by Jesus. This is the way he describes himself. And next to him, Judas. This is the difference between Judas and John. Judas completely undermined the place that the Lord had given him. A place of honor. And John, listen up church, didn't care about the place of honor. Do you know what he cared about? That he was loved by Jesus. Isn't that what we need the most today? That we remember that the reason why Jesus lived, died, and resurrected is so we could be completely loved by him. The power to be able to humble ourselves and love other people is when we remember and when we see our place on the table, not just as a place of honor, but that we are loved by Jesus. Number three, you got to learn how to see your feet being washed. Notice that Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And Jesus still washes his feet. It's almost like if Jesus is saying to him, listen, I know what you're going to do. I know what your heart is and your struggle is. I know. But I still want to wash you. You see how radical that love is? We don't just love the church members that we like. We love the ones that have the potential to become betrayers. We love the ones that have hurt us. And number four, we got to learn how to see the bread being given. 
I said this before to you guys in different occasions. But when Jesus grabs the bread, he dips it in water and gives it to Judas. Anytime, anybody in that culture and that time will tell you that that was always a sign of acceptance. He's, he's grabbing the bread and he's giving it to Judas. And he's saying the same thing that he did with the washing of feet. I know what you're going to do. I know your heart. I know what you're going to do to me. And yet I want you. I want you. See, when I see myself like Judas, that is the only way I learn how to humble myself. And I learn how to love. Now we're going to participate in communion now. And whether you're here or you're at home, I want you to get your elements. And as we participate, I want to remind you of this. As sinners, we were invited to the table by our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And just like Judas, he dipped the bread and he extended it to us. So if you have your cup or if you're doing it different at home, but if you have your cup, there's two, there's like two different things on top of it. I want you to get rid of the first one, please, if you can. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do this one here. All right, this is not working for me. Can I get another one? Never mind, never mind. Thank you, thank you. I got it. I want you to grab the bread. Close your eyes for a second. And hear this from Jesus. I know who you are. I know what you have done. And I still want you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember some of me. You may participate. And then Jesus took the cup. And I want you to hear what Jesus said. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior, it is so easy for us to justify our behavior. It is so easy, Lord, to for any of us to seek greatness in things that we're not supposed to look greatness. It is so easy for us to assume that we know how to love the church and we know how to love one another. It is so easy, Lord, to pretend that everything is okay, Lord. It is so easy, Lord, for us to lack humility. But I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, for the sake of your glory and the joy of your people, Lord, that you teach us how to love one another and that you help us by the power of your spirit 
and the example that we have in you and the power of the gospel to humble ourselves. Lord, that we may learn how to see what our sin does to you all the time. Lord, that we may learn how to see, not just that we are sitting at the table, on your table, but that we are loved in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we learn, that we learn to see how you washed us at the cross. And Lord, that we may learn to see that an extension, an invitation was extended to us. Lord, for us, for those of us that are believers, may we remember that we have been accepted already. And if there's anybody here listening to this sermon who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, you make it happen. That they may see that they are also welcome to your table. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches. Can you please stand? Let's respond to the Lord in adoration.
You know, one of the things about John 13 is that Jesus is preparing the disciples to be sent into the world. And today, I have the privilege and the blessing to have Shelton Thompson the fourth, the fourth, to be sent by the church to go to the Dominican Republic to work and to serve with Kids Alive for a year, right? Two years. So as a church, we want to pray for him. And then after we pray for him, we want to send him. And then I want to send you with the blessing of Jesus Christ. Can you do me a favor? Just reach out uh, to Shelton. I'm going to pray for him. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we get to see the evidences and the power of the gospel in Shelton. What an example, Lord, of what it is to love other people and to humble yourself or themselves and himself to go somewhere else and love others. I pray, Lord, that you may be with him. I pray, Lord, that you protect him. I pray, Lord, that you may use him for these two years coming up, that your name may be glorified in him, that people may be able to see Jesus in him, and that the unbelieving world may believe in you because of the way he loves other people. And now, Lord, we want to receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, Amen. we love you, church. You are sent. Have a blessed day. Thank you, guys.